Good evening and welcome, brothers and sisters, to our Bible class this evening, where this evening our brother Neville Clark is going to be beginning a new series on the subject of the book of Ecclesiastes. And we will begin our evening this evening by singing together hymn 391, after which if you all remain standing for an opening word of prayer. Hymn 391, Almighty Maker of my frame, short is the measure of my days. Give me to know how frail I am, and spend the remnant to thy praise. That's hymn 391. Well, Brother Neville has asked that we take a reading from Ecclesiastes to introduce our study this evening. So we're going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, in the first 11 verses, would ask a brother David Emerson to come forward and lead us in that reading. Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. The words that the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth towards the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to its circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full, unto the place from whence the rivers came, thither they return again. All things are full of labor, man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done, is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? It hath been already of old time, which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Thank you, Brother David. With that then, would invite Brother Neville to lead us in considering the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, thank you, Brother Michael, and good evening, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters and young people. Ecclesiastes, brothers, sisters, and young people, I suppose, is one of those books which holds a, a certain fascination for most students of the Bible. It finds its place, of course, among the poetic books of Scripture, the books from Job to Proverbs, and its language reflects all the richness and pathos of any poetic book. It's similar, in many ways, to the book of Proverbs, isn't it? And that it contains many profound and pithy statements, but it's different to Proverbs, and that whereas Proverbs is a very, very diverse book, Ecclesiastes is very, very focused. It begins by stating its objective. It moves through, as the chapters progress, experiences, observations, deductions, and then arrives at an overwhelming conclusion at the end in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And it's an enticing book, really. An enticing book, because you see, it, it seeks to address the answer of the question of humanity, doesn't it? Why are we here? And how can we obtain ultimate fulfillment in life? A question which every generation of, in fact, every generation of mankind, believers and unbelievers alike, consciously or subconsciously ask themselves. How can they obtain ultimate fulfillment in life? You know, I have somewhat of an attachment to this book myself, personally. Because, as you'll be aware, most of you, I wasn't brought up in the truth. And as a result, I'd never really read the Bible until I was, well, in my early 20s. 
And it was Ecclesiastes, really, that demonstrated to me most powerfully that there could be no other course in life than a life of discipleship. I remember I was at home in the summer holidays back in 1986. I'd come in contact with the truth in Christchurch, but all the Christadelphians were at summer school. I had the, I had the summer vacation uh, at home, off work. So I sat down to read, read the Bible, read, right from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 1, to find out who Samson was. Where did David kill Goliath? What, what are all these stories I'd, I'd, I'd heard about in my childhood? My mother had recently given me a copy of the New International Version, which hadn't been published very long before that. And so I was reading a modern version. It was quite easy to read. And I distinctly remember the day that I turned the page to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I was lying on the lilo in the swimming pool. Sunglasses (laughs) with a Bible. (laughs) Reading the Bible, uh, trying to get a suntan. It was important at that particular point in time. And I turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and this is what I saw in the New International Version. The first words of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless. Meaningless, he says. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. I just about dropped the Bible in the water (laughs) at that verse. I kept reading. I read the whole book straight through. I ran straight inside to mum. It was about five o'clock at night. She was peeling potatoes over the sink. I said, mum, this is the purpose of life. Listen to this. And I started reading different pieces out of it. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's interesting, she said. I knew immediately, brothers and sisters and young people, that if the Bible answered these kinds of questions, then it could answer any question. Any question in the world, if it could answer those sorts of questions. You know, when I was young, a lot younger, and maybe it's happened to you, I would, I would think a thought, any thought, a trivial thought, and I might say to myself, I wonder if anyone in the world, ever in history, has ever thought that particular thought. Perhaps in my egotism, I thought that. And I wondered if my thought was perhaps in some way unique. I read Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, The thing that hath been is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing under the sun. Yes, they've thought that precise thought before, most probably. I was at university at the time and I was reading Ecclesiastes. And I suppose when you finish your education, perhaps a higher education, you wonder what you're going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do for a job. I didn't know where life would take me. And I wondered... I remember wondering at the time what life would hold. Perhaps I'd get a job that would make me famous somehow. Perhaps I would accomplish some, uh, something and be distinguished in some way. <laughs> it wasn't the case. But perhaps that could have been. And I read verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. No, you won't be famous. And if you are, it will be for a generation. Most things are irrelevant. And there are, the, there are other verses which I had the precise experience of in my life. As, as no doubt you will, if you read these verses carefully, you can relate the precise experiences in your life to some of these verses. But the point that really struck me, brothers and sisters, as I was sitting in the swimming pool that afternoon, was that not only has somebody already done these things and analysed the consequences of them, but they did it 3,000 years ago. They did all this 3,000 years. They duplicated my thought. They wondered what life would bring them 3,000 years ago. You see, the book of Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon 1,000 BC. Brothers and sisters, that's prehistoric. And what that tells you immediately, you see, is that nothing has changed, at least in the last 3,000 years. Man has not answered any serious question. Man has not solved any serious problem in the last 3,000 years, at least since this was written, because this could be written tomorrow, and not a word would change, would it? It's a riveting argument, isn't it? 
It's a riveting argument, the argument of Ecclesiastes. It doesn't leave a stone unturned. It analyzes every aspect of life in a deeply practical manner, and the conclusion is absolutely irresistible. It's watertight by the time you get to chapter 12. Now, we said that Ecclesiastes was recording the words of Solomon. Why do we say it's the words of Solomon? Because you would be aware it never actually tells us in Ecclesiastes that Solomon wrote it. It introduces the book in a a title verse in chapter 1 and verse 1 as the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It doesn't say it's Solomon, it just says it's the preacher, or as the NIV says, the teacher. But when you look at the credentials of the author, as he begins to describe himself and his, his fittedness for investigating the quest of this book, frankly, there can be no doubt whatsoever that it is Solomon. Verse 1 tells us, of course, that it's the son of David. Now, critics argue that the son of David simply means descendant of David. And whilst perhaps Solomon might have been the most preeminent son of David, this verse really means nothing more than that Solomon is one possibility, but that any son of David would do. But the verse goes on, doesn't it, in verse 1? Perhaps I'll put this up. Look, I've got a few overheads to put up tonight, about eight overheads, but I've got copies for you after the class. So don't copy the overheads down. Maybe just make a note of the title of the overheads if you're taking notes. But you can collect a copy from me after we conclude. King in Jerusalem, it tells us he was. The second point of identification of the author is that he was a king in Jerusalem. So now we're talking about a royal descendant of David, not just any son, a royal descendant. But of course, it could still refer to any king of Judah, couldn't it? Simply being a son of David and a king. It tells us in verse 12 of chapter 1 uh, that this preacher was the king over Israel in Jerusalem. That is over all 12 tribes. Well, the only descendants of David that did that were Solomon and Rehoboam, until, of course, the division in the kingdom in Rehoboam's reign. So, of course, we've narrowed the field pretty substantially down to two men. But the critics argue again that, well... Perhaps after the northern tribes went into captivity, uh, the word Israel could be used just to describe the southern tribes and that perhaps Hezekiah or someone could be said to be king over Israel because it was only Judah that was Israel at that time. Well, by the time you get to verse 16, you really run out of options in deciding who this might be. I commune with my own heart, says the preacher, saying, Lo, I'm come to great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And now we're only really talking about one person. First of Kings 3 and verse 12 says that God gave Solomon a wise and understanding heart. Solomon of all men of scripture, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, is the man preeminently associated with the subject of wisdom. There's really no doubt at this point, is there, who the writer is. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 42, even the Lord Jesus Christ recognized Solomon for his caliber of wisdom. And this this preacher is a preacher renowned for great building works. And chapter 2 is full of it, the great building works. And when you read 1 Kings 9, you read the kinds of things that Solomon built in his life. He built the house of Yahweh, for example, it tells us. That is the temple. He built the king's house, or the palace. He built Milo, the retaining wall on the, uh, the east side of Jerusalem. He built the walls of the Jerusalem themselves. He built the cities of Hazor, of Megiddo, of Gera, Beth Horon, Balath, Tadmor. He built storage cities for chariots and for horsemen. All of this is, is in the king's record, you see. He built the house for Pharaoh's daughter. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon, the entrance up to the temple, and besides, a fleet of ships down at Ezion Geba. He was a prolific builder, was Solomon. Chapter 2 and verse 9 tells us that he was great and increased more than all those that were before him in Jerusalem. This preacher was great and increased more than all those before him in Jerusalem. First Kings 3 and verse 13, which we have there, tells us that God specifically told Solomon that, that there should not be any among the kings like him in all his days. He would be a unique man, especially blessed by God. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 28 talks about finding one woman among a thousand. We know from First of Kings chapter 11 that Simon had a thousand women. That statement means something in his life which it just does not mean in the lives of others. 700 wives, 300 concubines it tells us he had. And perhaps the most compelling of all are these verses in chapter 12. He taught knowledge. He wrote Proverbs. He was the master of assemblies. That's what it says of the preacher. Knowledge, Proverbs, the master of assemblies. Solomon, of course, was renowned for his contribution to the wisdom literature of Israel. In 1 Kings 4 and verse 32, it tells us that he spake 3,000 Proverbs and his songs were 1,005. And in chapter 8 of Kings... He led the nation in worship as the master of assemblies at the dedication of the temple. What's more, the preacher needed certain key credentials, didn't he? If he was going to investigate the quest of the book of Ecclesiastes, he had to at least be able to perform it. And so the author needed, he needed the power, the resources and the opportunities to actually undergo the tests that he's planning to perform in in this book. Well, Solomon had them, you see. Solomon had all the money in the world, all the power. In the, he was a king. And who could exceed the king? He needed the wisdom to analyze the results. It's one thing to go and build a lot of buildings and investigate a lot of things and talk to a lot of people. You've got to have, you've got to have the intellect to, be able to, uh, to marshal those facts and to draw some sort of sensible conclusion. Well, he was. He was extremely wise, wasn't he? And then when you've done that, You've got to be able to convey it. You've got to be able to teach others. And First of Kings 10 and verse 24 tells us that all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. No question, brothers and sisters, and, and, and most conservative commentators today don't even really debate the point that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. Well, then the question emerges, I suppose, as to when this book might have been written. We said 1000 BC. Actually, you'll see I've said here, Solomon really ruled from 972 to about 930 BC. And reading the book of Ecclesiastes, it would seem that the words that are written here were written late in Solomon's life. It obviously took some time to complete the quest that he, he planned to do in this book. But in chapter 12 particularly, we have the, the record of the frailty of age recorded in the earlier verses of chapter 12 which would really, I believe, most appropriately be written by an older person. And so, let's say the last five years, or something like that, of Solomon's life, we're talking approximately 935, 930 BC, the book of Ecclesiastes was written. Well, the next question, I suppose, that emerges is, if Solomon is the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, and it is so easy to identify him as the author, Why does he keep it a secret? For example, why doesn't verse 1 say, the words of Solomon, the son of David, king in Jerusalem? Why does he bother to go under this non-diplume and call himself simply the preacher? And the reason for that, I believe, is that these words are in fact an indictment of the life of Solomon. The conclusions that Solomon draws in this book about faithfulness before God are not the conclusions, for the most part, you might say, that he drew in his own life. Solomon had many excursions into apostasy, which are not in harmony with the words we read here. In fact, I, I'd go so far as to say I believe that this, is, this forms, in many ways, somewhat of a confession of Solomon, written at the end of his life, as if to say, do the things I say, don't do the things I do. And the message is too important to be compromised by having his name attached to it. Lest the reader of the book says, Oh, physician, heal thyself and disregard the message, which in fact is a very powerful message. Well, we call it the book of Ecclesiastes. Why do we call it the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, you look at the title. Before verse 1, you'll have a title. It says, Ecclesiastes, or The Preacher. The book of Ecclesiastes is the book of Ecclesiastes or the preacher. Now the word preacher in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word koaleth. And koaleth means one who assembles things, someone who collects and assembles things. 
it's, of course, it's based on the Hebrew word kahal, which is the word for ecclesia, which is an assembly. The Greek word for preacher, the Hebrew word is kaoleth, the Greek word for preacher in the Septuagint version is the word ecclesiaston, from whence we get, by transliteration, ecclesiastes. So ecclesiastes is merely, if you like, the Greek translation of the English word preacher. These are the words of the preacher, the words of the ecclesiastic, the book of Ecclesiastes. As simple as that. Now, when we say the preacher assembles things, the word, the word preacher, the Hebrew word kaleth, means to assemble things. Assemble what? Assemble people? Assemble knowledge? Assemble what? Well, you come across to chapter 12. We've got the, the meaning of the word preacher defined for us here. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 10. It tells us here that the preacher, the coaleth, sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. So the the preacher is somebody who who assembles things, and in this verse it tells us what he's trying to assemble. He's looking for acceptable words. Here's somebody who assembles knowledge, someone who collects the fruits of experience, who arranges them as words of wisdom, and then teaches those things to other people. And as we say, the Greek word for preacher is the word ecclesiaston, from whence we get ecclesiastes, the words of the preacher. The words of somebody who has assembled wisdom and words of wisdom. And of course that leads us into the purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? As we said before, Ecclesiastes seeks to answer the burning question of life. How can we obtain ultimate fulfillment in this life? Brother H.P. Mansfield, is his, his uh, overarching title to the book of Ecclesiastes He calls it the quest for the greatest good. And I think that's a very good title, the quest for the greatest good, because you see, that's exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes is. It's a quest. It's an experiment. Solomon here sets out to go on a voyage of discovery, experimenting in every aspect of life to find out what will give him ultimate pleasure, an enduring and abiding happiness. That's That's what he's wanting to do in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you simply live life as an end in itself, what would you do that would completely satisfy you and overcome all the vagaries and uncertainties which might come upon you? What what ultimate method of satisfaction would you pursue? Not that Solomon ignores God. You come back to chapter 1. By no means is God left out of the picture. By no means does uh, does Solomon begin Ecclesiastes as an atheist and finally establish the fact that God is important. In in chapter 1 and verse 13, for example, right at the very outset of the quest, God's mentioned. It tells us that he gave his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail have God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. So he knows, he's a believer at the beginning, but he has to know, try and work out the conundrums of life. And... Therefore, I suppose, the, the, the best way to see the value of religion is to try and address the important questions of life without religion, isn't it? And that's what he begins to do. That's how Ecclesiastes begins. He tries to address all the issues of life, answer the questions of life, the unfairness, uh, the ambiguities of life, without recourse to religion to see if there is an answer, to see what an unbeliever will make of life, what what eternal good an unbeliever, for example, could possibly derive. And that's where it begins. Because the whole purpose of the book is to find out what man should do to obtain ultimate fulfilment. And here's the aim. Here's the structure, here's my structure, of the book of Ecclesiastes. And what I've done here, brothers and sisters and young people, is is to produce this structure at a reasonably high level of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you'll see I've got these sections. 
the quest introduced, and what we're looking at tonight is just the introduction of the book, the introduction of the quest. Uh, the quest pursued by personal experience. The quest pursued by general observation. The quest pursued by mature reflection. And then, of course, in the last few verses, the conclusion of the quest. These sections have interspersed among them certain direct exhortations on various different subjects which are important as the book pursues its argument. Now, I should point out this as you look at those words. Ecclesiastes, I think, of any book I've ever looked at in Scripture is probably the most difficult book to get a structure of. Most difficult. I had enormous trouble trying to put this together. I thought it was going to be easy. I've got about eight different breakups of the book of Ecclesiastes on my desk at home, and, and this is not one of them. It's a compilation of different things and, and the result of discussions with other brethren. An extremely difficult book to try and work out any sort of structure of because, of course, the nature of the quest began to change as it became apparent that Solomon could not quickly and simply answer the questions he had. I'll show you what I mean. You look at chapter 1 and verse 8. All things are full of labour, says Solomon. He's got a problem with the amount of toil that has to go on in life for apparently meaningless reasons. Everything's full of labour, he says. And man is never satisfied. That's what he says in chapter 1 and verse 8. He goes on in verse 9, he says, And what's more, there's nothing new. Verse 11, And nothing is remembered from one generation to another. So these are the problems, Solomon says, that I have to overcome. In my quest, I will now seek to try and address those problems and answer them for all mankind. But, he says, but, verse 18 of chapter 1, the more I thought about it, the more I considered what was going on around me, the more upset I got. So I turned my hand to labour. I said, all right, well, there's labour everywhere. I will go and labour harder than anyone. I'll build everything. Chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Look, I made gardens, I made orchards, I planted trees, pools of water. I started to create things and to, and, and to give myself to labour in an enormous degree. Uh, but when I finished, I wasn't satisfied. I hadn't solved any. I, I built everything. I hadn't solved anything, he says. All my labour was vain. None of my achievements... Uh, we're going to gain any real recognition by those after me, or perhaps except for the immediately succeeding generation. Uh, all I've done is I've built a whole lot of projects and got myself one step closer to death. And then what? And then what? I die. And then what? I leave all of this to somebody else. And what if that somebody else is a fool? Which, of course, he was. Where have we got to, says Solomon? We've expended an enormous amount of energy. All we've done is made the quest bigger. I've now found out there are more problems to answer than I began with. And so all the issues which I began with in chapter 1 and brought into chapter 2, I've added to them, and I'm going to roll that problem now into Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and start to answer, the, start to answer it there. So you see, the problem gets bigger. And therefore the structure changes. All these other issues have to get combined into the structure. And Solomon now starts to have to answer more and more things as life goes on, life gets more complicated, and at the outset, deliberately, he refuses to address it from the divine point of view. But he does land upon one thing. One thing he says, I'll tell you this. Chapter 2, verse 13. I have, in all my work, in all my investigation, I have found out one thing. I can't tell you how to solve the problems of life, but I can tell you how not to make your situation worse. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly. As much as wisdom upsets me, wisdom does excel folly as far as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceive that one event happens to them all. So yes, they both die, but even if you can't solve the problems of life, you can at least keep your eyes in your head. If your solution to the problems of life, he says, is to pretend that they aren't problems at all, and to pretend that there are no problems, then you'll probably only make your situation worse. You might not have solved anything by listening to me, but at least 
you can tread water while I keep investigating my quest. And that's the almost, almost the only helpful thing he finds out in the first couple of chapters. But when you come to the structure and now try and put it into place, you can see the problems we've got, can't you? Because the quest is getting bigger as these chapters emerge. It's almost as though the structure seems to evolve as the book goes along, and therefore it's very difficult to divide up the, the book of Ecclesiastes in terms of the subjects it discusses, because Solomon has to keep coming back to subjects because he never really finds the answer to some of them. But there are, nevertheless, some significant features in the book of Ecclesiastes which do help us grapple with the problem of the structure. For example, in chapter 2, you, you look at this. Now, now look at the language that's used. In chapter 2, we've got it here. It's one of the chapters of personal experience. And I'll show you why I've done that. Look what he says in verse 1. I said in my heart, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1. I will prove thee with mirth. Verse 3. I sought in my heart. Verse 4. I made me. Verse 5. I made me. Verse 6. I made me. Verse 7. I got me. He's doing things, you see. This is going to be the personal experience of Solomon. This is activity, enormous activity. When you come to chapter 3, it changes. He's not active anymore in chapter 3, not in the same way. Chapter 3, verse 10. I have seen travail. Chapter 3, verse 16. And moreover, I saw under the sun. Verse 22. Wherefore, I perceive. He's not building things anymore now. He's observing. He's watching what happens about him. You see? General observation. So what began as personal experience has now changed. It's not the answer. Personal experience is not the answer. Perhaps we start collecting more data. General observation. Chapter 4, verse 1. I returned and considered. Chapter 4, verse 4. Again, I considered. Chapter 4, verse 7. Then I returned and I saw, you see, chapter 4 verse 15, I considered. And he's starting now to observe things. He's looking around and watching what happens so that he can make deductions. And then in chapter 5, we've got another major change. Keep thy foot when thou goest into the house of God. Verse 2, be not rash with thy mouth, let not thine heart be hasty. The first four chapters are all recorded in the first person. I did this, I did that, I built this, I built that. Chapter 5 all of a sudden changes to the second person. You should do this, you should do that. But can you see what we're doing? This is the basis of the structure we've put together here. Not so much the subject matter that Solomon deals with, because, of course, the nature of the problem keeps changing through the book. But the approach that Solomon takes to the quest. What approach does Solomon take to the quest? And therefore, we've got personal experience followed by observation, followed by reflection. And in this first in all of those sections, we have got direct exhortations to the believers about what he finds on the way that is helpful, even though he might not have solved all the problems at, at various stages here that he began to try and solve in chapter 1 and verse 1. There's one or two other things I should tell you about the structure before we leave this subject. Ecclesiastes does have some key words. The first key word, well, since we're here, the first key word I suppose you should be aware of is, is the words thee and thou, the second person. Whenever, whenever Solomon uses the language thee, thou, thy in Ecclesiastes, he's speaking to the Ecclesia. It is a direct exhortation. And you'll find that and these are the only places he uses them. He speaks directly to the Ecclesia by using this language. Everywhere else it's them. They do this. They out there do that. I did this. I did that. But you, when I speak to you, I'm talking to the Ecclesia. Thee and thou is to the Ecclesia. The next key word is this phrase, under the sun. You'll see it in chapter 1, verse 3. You'll see it in chapter 1, verse 9. 
In fact, the phrase under the sun occurs 29 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I'd recommend you colour it in. There's an equivalent phrase also which occurs three times. It's the phrase under heaven. So under the sun, under heaven, is a critical phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes which you ought to go and colour in because the places it occurs, it is speaking about life in its natural state. Life without God is just talking about what happens in the natural world viewed from a natural point of view, under the sun. The important thing is, of course, what you'll notice, if you colour in the these and the thys, the, the second person in Ecclesiastes, pick a blue, for example, and colour in thee and thy, and pick a red and colour in under the sun, you'll find that wherever Solomon uses thee and thy, he never uses under the sun. Whenever he speaks to the Ecclesia, he never speaks to them as being under the sun, except one occasion in chapter 9 where he talks about death. Because, of course, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you die. You're subject to vanity in that sense. But everywhere else, all of these direct exhortations, and look, chapter 10, verse 20 to 12, verse 7, some of them are pretty big section. Under the sun does not occur at all in those sections, except here, where he speaks about death. One, one verse in that section there where he speaks about death. So there's a contrast there, which is, and as soon as you, you colour it in, the whole book really falls open, and you can see, you can see really who Solomon's addressing as his audience. He does, however, mention the sun. You come with me to, uh, well, pick chapter seven, verse eleven. He does mention the sun a couple of times in his exhortations to believers, but he doesn't tell them that under the sun. You know what he says? Look, he says Ecclesiastes seven, verse eleven. Now Ecclesiastes seven, of course direct exhortation on better things, on things that are more helpful, things that are more profitable. And he speaks to the brethren here and he tells them in verse 11 that wisdom is good with an inheritance and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. You see? He's speaking to the brethren. They're not under the sun, they see the sun. Very important distinction, you see. The other key word, of course, is the word vanity. It appears in the Second verse, a number of times actually in the second verse of the first chapter, 40 times in all in the book of Ecclesiastes, the word vanity appears. Speaking of the, of the transient, the unfulfilled state of the world without God. So you see, Simon's really addressing two issues in Ecclesiastes, life with and life without God. Now I'll show you something. Now that you understand that, you can probably solve this problem. You come with me to chapter 8. You see, a lot of people have made a lot of hard work on the book of Ecclesiastes because they haven't understood some of the things we've just discussed. And in chapter 8, there's a contradiction. Now, you solve the contradiction. Chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. Though a sinner do evil in a hundred times and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. And in verse 13, But it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he feareth not before God. And you see the contradiction. In verse 12 it says that the sinner will have his days prolonged. But in verse 13 it says that the sinner will not have his days prolonged. And... Some critics have looked at this and said, oh, we've got a problem here. Obviously what happened is that Solomon wrote verse 12 and a very faithful scribe came along after him and disagreed and corrected it in verse 13. Well, where do you end if you begin a discussion like that? And in fact, Ecclesiastes has got two writers and not one because this sort of thing occurs often in the book. How do you solve it? There's a contradiction here. How do you solve this contradiction? Well, it's not too hard, is it? Verse 12, in this natural life, in this natural life, a sinner may well live to a very old age. But in verse 13, in an eternal sense, when the saints inherit immortality, when judgment is in the earth, sinners will go like a shadow. But you see how people have become confused because these two verses are written from two different points of view. There's a different frame of reference behind each of these verses. 
I'll show you another one. Look, chapter 1, verse 18. And these are the problems of Ecclesiastes where, where people have got stuck. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 18. And you see how Solomon is running between opposites, trying, desperately trying to solve the problems that he's begun with. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 18 says, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. The more you know, the more unhappy you become. Alright, chapter 2 verse 26. For God, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 26. For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now you've just read in chapter 1, verse 18, that wisdom brings grief and knowledge brings sorrow. And here we have to the man that is good in his sight, God gives wisdom and sorrow. And that's meant to produce joy. It doesn't produce joy at all in chapter 1. What kind of a blessing is that? This is a contradiction. What's the answer? Well, it's simple, isn't it? If you don't have God in your life, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, then the more you know about the problems of the world, the more upset you become because they will not solve themselves. Nothing is, nothing is rendering down to any kind of solution in this world. But if your wisdom is from above in chapter 2, if the wisdom you're gaining is biblical wisdom, well then, Psalm 119 verse 130 says, that the entrance of thy word giveth light. It's an enormous blessing to have the wisdom of God in chapter 2. It's two different types of wisdom. One accomplishes things and answers problems. The other one brings vexation of spirit. You see, and Solomon, all the way through the book, is looking at life from two different points of view to establish the value of religion and, and just what a man ought to do in his life. You want to see how fundamental, brothers and sisters and young people, the, the issues of Ecclesiastes are? Look at this. The problems of the book of Genesis all arise in the book of Ecclesiastes. In Genesis 1 and verse 31, we're told that creation is very good. In Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29... God, it says, made man upright. A direct reference back to how man was created. Well, we have, we have Eve made from the side of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. For that cause, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Ecclesiastes says, one of the great blessings of God is simply to live joyfully with the wife of your youth, as Adam began to do. Well, then there was the fall. Mankind sinned in Genesis chapter 3. Ecclesiastes says in chapter 7, There's not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. An immediate commentary on that as well. And the woman, of course, was first in transgression. Ecclesiastes 7 again, I find more bitter than death. Death of all things, he says. The woman whose heart is snares and nets. And the earth was cursed as a result of that sin. Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 15 says, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. The food chain has been dislocated. The whole of the life cycle has been dislocated. Man's nature has been dislocated. You won't change it. It's cursed. You will not change it. And there's labour. Adam was cursed with labour. All things, chapter 1 verse 8 says, are full of labour. A result of the problem in Genesis. And there's death, of course. Also part of the curse, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you know, speaks of death. Man dies, beast dies, they, they die alike. This is interesting. Genesis chapter 4, Abel means vanity. The name Abel, he, the Hebrew word Hebel means vanity. It's the same word vanity as is used in Ecclesiastes. Why is that a point? Well, after the fall, it appears, when Eve begat Cain, she called him Cain because he was gotten. Cain means gotten, doesn't he? He was gotten from Yahweh. And it appears as though Eve thought that Cain might have been the promised seed of Genesis 3 verse 15. That there would be a seed to come to solve the problem of mankind. She has a boy who was, who was her seed. Perhaps gotten from Yahweh, she says. It became very obvious that that wasn't true. The next son she has is vanity. 
And finally, Genesis chapter 6, just before the flood, the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, you've got the duplicate statement. The heart, and listen, it's even better than, than Genesis 6. The heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they die. That's what he says. These are the problems of the early chapters of the book of Genesis. This is what Solomon is wrestling with as he now starts to solve the meaning of life, you see. The problems that were created way back in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. But he does solve them. And this is what he concludes. This is the answer that Solomon gets in the book of Ecclesiastes. Simple conclusions, but profound conclusions. This is, this is where his quest takes him. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the conflict is exposed between a desire for fulfillment and a life in which nothing is ever fulfilled. That's what he finds in this quest. Secondly, he says, serving God is the only key, is the only key to complete satisfaction and fulfillment. And finally, there is real advantage in living this life as a day of opportunity leading to a larger and more complete purpose. If you could boil everything down into a nutshell that that Solomon concludes in the book of Ecclesiastes, it would fit there. That's where he gets to. Now, it takes him a long time to get there because life's a complex thing. People are complex animals. But that's what he gets to at the end of the day. That's his conclusion on the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, with that as a background then, let's come back to chapter 1 and just look at these few verses that we read together tonight because these are, of course, the introductory verses. This is the, the basis of the quest that Solomon is now going to go about to try and resolve. This is where he gets to, but you can see, you can see, I hope, how complicated the problem is and just how hard he is going to try to solve this problem and, and how obviously frustrated he's going to be at many points along the way as he endeavours to do so. Chapter 1, verse 1. Well, we've looked at it really in some detail already. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, we've already talked about the preacher, as I say. There's only one thing to add here, and that is this issue of the fact that he identifies himself as the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And you might ask me, well, if Solomon is that intent on concealing his identity, to to detach himself from the message personally, not even put his name here, why does he drop hints like this which make it extremely obvious to us all who he actually is? Why reveal this detail, that he's a king in Jerusalem? Well, here's the answer. Chapter 2, verse 12. Look at this. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 12. He says, I turned myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? Even that which has already been done. The fact that it was Solomon, he says, is not worth telling you. But the fact that I'm a king, means I have opportunities which you just don't have. I've got money which you just don't have. I've got resources. I've got power which you just don't have. And therefore, I can, I can investigate this quest better than you. If the king can't do it, nor can anybody else. Therefore, whilst putting the name Solomon in here might detract from the message of Ecclesiastes, the fact that he's a king adds to it. Because it adds credibility to the investigation of the quest, you see. Well, vanity, he says. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And here's our key word, of course, 40 times. Emptiness, as it means. Meaningless, as the NIV says. Something transitory. Something devoid of substance, which provides no lasting satisfaction. That's what vanity means. You might like to take another of these. Psalm 144, verse 4. Psalm 144, verse 4. Man is like to vanity. His days are a shadow that passeth away. James 4 verse 14. For what is your life, he says, it is even a vapour that appeareth for a little time and vanisheth away. 
James 4 verse 14. You see, the entire fabric of natural life is insubstantial. It's unsatisfying if lived as an end in itself. Everything is meaningless. Everything's a chasing after the wind. It's vanity and vexation of spirit if lived in ignorance of the truth. Verse 3, then he says, well, what profit does a man have of all his labor which he takes under the sun? And this is the extent, of course, to which Solomon now begins his inquiry. Under the sun, 29 times. Under heaven, three times. Equivalent terms. Under the sun, of course, does duty for everything that happens in, in the natural world. In a literal sense, everything on earth happens under the sun. So this phrase implies everything we do in our whole life in the natural world, under the sun. But you look at this. It's no coincidence that Solomon uses this phrase, under the sun. This style of language, under the sun, under heaven, upon earth, is known in other ancient works. Other ancient works written before and after the book of Ecclesiastes. Babylonian writings speak of two realms, under the sun and in heaven. Occasionally, in Egyptian writings, a similar antithesis is found between heaven and earth. Rickmans refers to a similar formula in South Arabian inscriptions. The expression under the sun also occurs in an Elamite inscription. Then in the late fourth century, then the late in the late fourth century, Phoenician inscriptions of Tabnith, king of Sidon, the phrase has exactly the same form as in Ecclesiastes. Similar terminology is found in the late fourth century inscription of Eshmanazar, the king of Sidon. And finally, the Greek writers Theognis and Euripides use similar expressions. This, this phrase, under the sun, is a phrase which was in common use in ancient language. People used to speak about what happened on earth versus what the gods did by referring to us down here as under the sun. Now you come to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Look, here's the answer to a verse at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon is now going to answer the whole problem of things that go on under the sun. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 12, he writes these words for this reason. Further, he says, in chapter 12 and verse 12, and further, by these, my son, be admonished. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The many books which Solomon refers to here appear to be on the issue of life, on the issue of the quest, on the issue of things under the sun. And he says, look, you can fill libraries with books like that. People have philosophized since the world began on the meaning of life. I'm going to give you the answer in 12 chapters. I'm going to tell you what the meaning of life is under the sun and put an end to it. Because every culture, every culture has tried to investigate this problem. And they've failed, of course. They've failed. I'm going to give you the answer right here, which, of course, he then goes and does. You see? Well, he says in, in chapter 1 and verse 3, what profit does a man have of all his labor which he takes under the sun? So all these things happen to us, says Solomon. What's the profit? What's the net result? What's the lasting gain of everything we do in this life? You see, life, I suppose, could be regarded as a business transaction, couldn't it? A person works all their life, they get to the end. What have they got left over? What's the profit that they can, they, they can put on the table and show that this is, the, this is, this is the, the yield from my life? We're reminded of the rich fool, aren't we, in Luke chapter 12. Stored up many possessions. What shall I do, he says. I've got nowhere to bestow all my fruits. I'll build barns and bigger barns. I'll eat, I'll drink and be married. And he's a fool because, of course, that night his soul was required of him. And Jesus says, Whose then? Whose then shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for self and is not rich toward God. No profit, you see. No profit under the sun. No point in laying up well. You can't take it with you. You'll die and you'll have nothing to contribute. You'll leave it all behind to somebody else after you die. 
Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, Jesus specifically said, what profit, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Which is why, which is why in Colossians 3 and verse 2, the apostle Paul said, set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. See beyond this present life. Understand it for what it is. Learn from it. Don't fall prey to it. Whatever you do, don't fall prey to it. In the words of Ecclesiastes 11, the light is sweet. It's a pleasant thing for the eyes to behold the sun. Understand the nature we have, the course of our natural environment, and what we're meant to do in it. And now Solomon amplifies the problem, doesn't he, in verse 4 of chapter 1. He raises it to the next level. Look, he says, one generation passes away. Another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The brevity of life, you see, contrasted with the permanence of the earth. A man's life is so short. Look, he's just, he's just got no hope of achieving anything in creation. He's bound to this weary cycle of life, of death, of life. Of, everything's the same as it's always been. Every generation is just another generation. When one generation dies, another one rises up to take its place, and the earth just keeps doing what the earth has always done. Man really is a very puny appendage, isn't he, to the greatness of creation. And look at this, verse 5. A classic illustration now of the view of Solomon takes of life in these matters. Look what he says, verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastes to the place where he arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns about to the north. It whirls about continually and the wind returns again according to his circuits. Round and round the wind goes. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Under the place from whence the rivers come, further they return again. All things are full of labor. It's happening everywhere. There's an enormous frenzy of activity in, crea in creation and nothing is happening. It's all staying just the same. Three enormous aspects of the futility of life you see in creation, despite the fact that it's exhausting itself with labor. But you look, you, you look how, how depressing Solomon's perspective is. Look at this. The sun. What do you know about the sun in Scripture? Jeremiah. Jeremiah looks at the sun, and this is what he says in Jeremiah chapter 31. Thus saith Yahweh, he says, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon, and of the stars for a light by night. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. What does he see? What does he mean? Certainty, consistency, dependability. You see, the sun sits there, he says, like a rock in the sky, unfailing, unchanging, reliable. And he compares that to the promises of God. He says, that's what the sun's like. You stop that, and Israel's gone. You can't stop it. It will always be there. That's what Jeremiah, he looks at the sun, that's what he, he says, that's the certainty of the regathering of Israel, that orb in the sky. David. Psalm 19, he looks at the sun. The sun, he says, is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoicing as a strong man to run a race. What does he see when he sees the sun, brothers and sisters, young people? He watches it, doesn't he? He watches it burst forth from the horizon like a strong man, catapults himself across the sky, and there it goes, vanishes down the other side. He sees this... this, this Enormous ball of strength, doesn't he? Like a strong man to run a race, crouching there, waiting on the starting line for the first, for the first hint of the morning to begin and the first ray appears and it explodes into action and the race is on across the sky. He looks at the sun, that's what he sees. In his own youth, a symbol of strength. Solomon, exhaustion. The sun rises and goes down and hasten, gasping the word means, to gasp or to pant to the place where he arose. All he sees is exhort day after day the sun claws its way across the sky from one side of the world to the other, gasping for breath 
as it reaches the western horizon, only to get up the next morning and do it all again. Futility. Monotony. Hopelessness. You see? Life without the truth. Life without the truth. That's how he describes it. And this is the life of mankind, isn't it? The sun, the, the rivers, the, the wind. Man bursts into this world like a, like a, in a blaze of glory. He's born and from that moment now drawn inexorably towards his twilight years, isn't he? And while he lives, he's blown about this way, that way, doing whatever makes him happy, whatever he has to do to stay alive, to entertain himself. Round and round and round in circles he goes all his life until finally, like a river into the sea, he empties out into the same place that all men go. And that sea is never full, is it? Because all men go there. That's what he describes. He says, look, it's just a depressing commentary on life. One figment of creation after another. It's weariness, it's depressing, it's upsetting. And to make matters worse, to make matters worse, in verse 8, in spite of all the activity in creation, despite the fact that creation is laboring to the point of exhaustion, it is incapable. Even creation, as powerful as it is, is incapable of providing man with any lasting satisfaction. Because whilst all things are full of labor, he says in verse 8, the eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear is not filled with hearing. Nothing is ever satiated. Nothing is ever quenched. And not only does man find himself a slave to the environment that he's, that he's in, he's also a slave to his own eyes and ears. He can never, ever get enough. They always want something new, and he can't provide it. He tries to provide it. He invents things. He imagines things. He dreams. He creates. Never, ever enough for the eye. Never, ever enough for the eye. Always wants to hear a new thing. Never, ever, ever full. And what's more, he says in verse 9, the thing that has been is that which shall be. That which is done is that which shall be done. There is no new thing under the sun. Life's never changed since the foundation of creation. If we omit God from the picture, he says, history's like a closed circuit. Nothing will ever be any different. Each generation only ever gains the same experiences as the former generation. Therefore, history is destined to repeat itself because man's lot never changes. And in verse 10 he says, Is there anything? Is there anything whereof it may be said, See, this is new? This is new? No, he says. It hath been already of old time, which was before us. Now look, you'd read that and you'd say, Not true, not true. What about things that are visibly new? New advances in technology, new creations, discoveries. There are some things that are new. No, no, what he's talking about here is new in relation to fulfillment, to, to our fulfillment. Are there new sources of happiness? Are there new things that men can do which give him an emotion that he's never had before? No, there are not. And, and what might appear to be new is only an illusion. It's superficially new, that's all. Fashion is no such thing as a new fashion. It's been before, isn't it? In verse 11 he says, What's more? To add morbidity to depression, there is no remembrance of former things. Neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that come after. No generation ever profits from the experiences of the previous. Advice can be passed on, certainly, but experience just cannot be passed on. You can't put an old head on young shoulders. You just can't do it. The momentous deeds of great men in history, all their wise sayings, they're very, very quickly forgotten by subsequent generations. Every generation thinks it's original, doesn't it? And so, of course, the world will never, ever improve. But do you want to know the problem here? Solomon tells us this in chapter 1 and verse 11. There's no remembrance of former things. He's very explicit about what he says there. You come across the page to chapter 2, verse 12, because we've got a problem. There's no remembrance, he says, in chapter 1, verse 11. But he tells us in chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Oh, look, I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. 
Because what can a man do that comes after the king, even that which has been already done? And we made the point, didn't he? Why does, why does he conduct the quest? So that he can find the answer for all time. So that, so, that, so that he can apply his great mind to the problems of creation, the problems of humanity, do things which we can't do, do them in a way which we can't do them, so that he can answer the question for us as well. So that we won't have to go on the same quest. That's what he's doing, isn't it? That's the point of chapter 2, verse 12. So that subsequent generations can learn from his experience. But by his own admission, that kind of experience can't be passed on. Generations don't learn from the experience of previous generations. Nobody can surpass the ability of the king to pursue pleasure in life, but they think they can. Nobody can be as wise as the king to, to evaluate these issues, but they think they can. Nobody could ever have the advice for future generations that Solomon has, but they think they can. You want to know something? God never ever asked Solomon to pursue this quest. This was Solomon's idea to pursue this quest, to conduct this experiment. God, God never asked Solomon to do it. Why not? Why didn't God ask Solomon to do this? Isn't, wouldn't, wouldn't you say Solomon's conclusion is worth knowing? Wouldn't you say the conclusions we put up on the screen before are momentous conclusions, that they're conclusions that all, all humanity ought to know? Well, what was the conclusion? What's Solomon's burning conclusion at the end of the book? You look at it. Chapter 12, verse 13. You'll know it. Look, after 12 chapters of slugging out the problem... Solomon arrives at this conclusion, this enormous conclusion in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. He says, look, I've got the answer. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments because that's the whole man. That is ultimate fulfillment. Now, wouldn't you say that that needs to be written down? Wouldn't you say, brothers and sisters and young people, that this is an exhortation worthy of Ecclesiastes? That the quest is worth it? He's discovered this and done it in a way that none of us could do it, and we have to learn from this? Well, yes. Why didn't God ask him to do it? Because it had been done already. 500 years before, hadn't it? These are the commandments Moses said, the statutes, the judgments which Yahweh your God commanded to teach you, that thou mightest fear Yahweh thy God to keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee this day, and thy son, and thy son's son, future generations. You see the problem? There's nothing new under the sun. God already knew the answer. A conscientious reader of the Bible already knew the answer that Solomon concludes after 12 rigorous chapters. He doesn't discover anything new. Moses knew that. Moses knew this 500 years before Solomon. But Solomon had to discover it himself, didn't he? He had to discover it himself. Because that's human nature, isn't it? And that, brothers, sisters and young people, is why we have the book of Ecclesiastes.